Hi, everyone. Uh, really excited for you guys to hear this episode. It's on Juna Barnes's novel Nightwood, which is a sorely neglected, I would say, modernist masterpiece, even. Uh, and it's something John and I have been wanting to talk about for a while because we feel like everyone who kind of talks about it just kind of waves their hands because it's incredibly dense, incredibly beautiful, and uh, and it offers no easy answers. And so we go a little long in the tooth on this one, um, but we're really happy for you to hear it. Uh, we're also happy to uh, welcome to the pod friend of the show, Anna, for this episode. Uh, it's one of Anna's favorite books. So without further ado... Thanks for joining us again this week. Uh, we have a very special guest tonight joining us here. Her name's Anna, and she's my girlfriend, and it's her birthday. Happy birthday, Anna. Thank you. Yeah, happy birthday to friend of the pod, Anna. And uh, for those wondering, yes, getting to come on the show is my gift to her. I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> All right. Well, Anna, we're here to talk about one of your favorite texts, a text that you actually introduced me to. I had honestly never heard about it until you told me about it, which is a little surprising given kind of the the heritage of this text and kind of what it led to. But we're here to talk this week about uh, Nightwood by Juna Barnes. Yeah, and uh, one of the reasons we wanted uh, help for this one is because Nightwood by Juno Barnes is sort of uh, a crazy book. <laughs> uh, there's a lot going on in terms of the style, the relationships, uh, the content, the author's relation to the topic. And when you read it, you're just kind of like, the in the introduction uh, of my copy, the author uh, compares it to drinking a glass of champagne with a pearl dissolved into it. Uh, which I think is the right metaphor for this kind of book. And we're like, we got to have Anna on the pod to talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah, this was a book that I stumbled upon on accident because I read uh, Giovanni's Room. And my mother is an English teacher. And she said, oh, you like Giovanni's Room? Why don't you do Nightwood? And yeah, I'm obsessed with it. Uh, it's kind of crazy to me that it's not very often mentioned in like the canon of modernism. Well, yeah, because like Juna Barnes used to run with a lot of the expatriate modernists that were in Paris, you know, James Joyce, Ernest Hemingway, Fitzgerald, a lot of people. And she was often writing about them because uh, she was a journalist and, you know, she deserves, I think, to be brought up with them. Uh, but she's not for probably sexist reasons. Yeah, it's really strange because that, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Ben, we talked about The Fraud, which is a book that's very concerned with kind of a separate but similar kind of demimond of writers in a certain period in history. And yeah, the, the expatriates in kind of 1920s Paris, Hemingway and, and all those guys, it's, I'd say really one of the last like kind of great chapters in like literature as most people kind of understand it. 
Like it's it's I, I can't think of another time people are nostalgic for literature in in the way that they are for kind of that period of time. Certainly nothing post-war, I think, really measures up just in terms of the way that people talk about the people involved in it and really kind of make them these mythological figures. Yeah, could you imagine Woody Allen making Midnight in Paris about the Iowa Writers Workshop? I couldn't. <laughs> I will. Then please do not speak such a horrible thing into existence. <laughs> Raymond Carver? We got to get Raymond Carver on the screen. <laughs> and so, but anyway, yeah, exactly, John. It's not valorized quite as well as, uh, I mean, it's valorized more than other literary periods. All right. Well, uh, so <laughs> listeners, you might tell we're, we're a little cagey about where to get started with this book. It's a surprising book in, in a lot of ways. It's it's a book that, again, like I said, I'd never heard of it. It clocks in at least my edition uh, from Faber Modern Classics clocks in at a, a slim 153 pages. Despite that fact, this is easily one of the most complex texts we i think have read for the pod so far there's so much going on here in terms of what it says about sexuality about politics about life uh to be a little trite that it really feels kind of hard to find the the right point of entry to discuss this book so why don't we kind of take a little step back then i know you did a little research on kind of juna barnes personal history I mean, because she has been so uh, given such a short shrift by the literary establishment, if you will, maybe maybe we can learn a little bit about her and kind of where she fits into this wider picture of, of literary history that we we talk about sometimes here on the show. Yeah. And one thing I think that's important about Gina Barnes is uh, also that I think in terms of American writers, uh, she's one of the great sort of like self-inventors. Uh, and I think. One of the reasons I would fit her into American literature is like a lot of great things about American lit are people that basically figure out how to write on their own. They're inspired by things, but they don't necessarily go to school for writing and they're not uh, educated in some sort of system. And I think that's something that's important about Juna Barnes. And as a quick side note, I did first hear about her. It was a list online in terms of what are the great American sermonizers? And it's like people that write sermons. And it was like Thomas Pynchon. Herman Melville, Frederick Douglass, and then Juna Barnes is on here. And like you, John, I was like, I've never heard of this woman. And so like, I looked her up and I was like, damn, this is crazy. And I think one of the characters will talk about him. Uh, Dr. Matthew, mighty grain of salt, Dante O'Connor is a, a great sermonizing character, which we'll talk about later, but that's sort of the context that I had first heard her in. So uh, a little bit background about her is that uh, basically she was born in a log cabin uh, on Storm King Mountain near Cornwall and Hudson, New York, kind of an incredible uh, location, if you ask me in terms of name. Uh, and her grandmother was a writer, journalist and women's suffrage activist. And her father was a unsuccessful uh, composer, musician and painter. And I think so. It's important that she was sort of raised in this sort of like artist atmosphere, although her father was an unsuccessful, uh, of, you know, basically composer and he was a polygamist. Uh, so uh, his mother, Juno Barnes' grandmother, was very supportive of him, Juno Barnes' father, even though he wasn't a successful artist. And, you know, he was married and he also had a mistress. So uh, there was a lot of children in the household. Uh, her father also believed in unlimited procreation. 
which might have influenced some of Juno Barnes' later views on sexuality and, and birthing. But uh, so there's a lot of children in the house and nobody was taking care of them. And so it was often left to Juno Barnes to do this. Um, and they didn't have a whole lot of money. So at one point they decided to literally split the family up, at which point Juno Barnes mo moves to New York. And she basically gets involved in the, you know, Greenwich Bohemian scene there. Uh, she's a she gets a job as a journalist uh, and she is quoted as saying, I can read and I can draw and I can write and you'd be a fool not to hire me. And so they immediately hired her and she actually got a, a big reputation for kind of what I would say is gonzo style journalism. So she was actually like, you know, taking part in uh, fasting um, and force feeding that currently suffragists were doing. She was attending boxing matches, at which point women weren't really allowed to visit. She has a piece titled, What Do Women Want in a Fight? Which I think is a, a great title. Uh, and so she was sort of already kind of setting the mold for journalism. Uh, and then uh, more or less, she gets jobs covering the expatriate scene, as we talked about in Paris. And she profiles James Joyce uh, and those kinds of things. Uh, and she writes a couple of novels that are interesting for style, uh, one of which writer, her first book was really influenced by uh, Ulysses. But the big one today, obviously, is Nightwood, which came out in 1936. Uh, and a lot of Nightwood is sort of influenced by her personal life. Uh, and Anna, you were talking about this. Uh, what are the details from her personal life that, that come up in this? Yeah, so she was actually in a relationship with an artist named Thelma Wood around the 1920s while she was living in Paris. I believe in 1927, she moved in with Elma Wood. Um, and she actually dedicated Writer and Lady's Almanac to her. Um, but then they later separated um, because Barnes wanted to be monogamous and Elma Wood did not. And there's an actually, there's a great like direct quote from her um, that she quoted saying that Wood wanted her along with the rest of the world. Um, and actually, Thelma Wood ended up with an heiress named Henrietta McCree Metcalf and moved in with her. And it's very clear that uh, the character of Jenny Petherbridge, which we'll get to later, uh, is like directly dunking on Henrietta McCree Metcalf. Yeah, she's referred to as the squatter for uh, reasons we'll <laughs> explain later. <laughs> You know, it's it's really interesting. I feel like something that we've brushed up on a little bit here and there over the course of the you know eleven episodes of the podcast so far is that these things we we think of as being very recent inventions in literature a lot of times aren't. And I feel like Nightwood, in a way, is almost kind of a precursor to like what we would today call like autofiction. I think it's much better than most like autofiction today because it's being written by someone who's like a great stylist and actually lived an interesting life instead of just being a trustafarian in New York going to shitty Peter Thiel parties with Anna Katchian. Uh <laughs> and talking about what is true. <laughs> but yeah, the the fact that like this book seems like it's it's so directly drawing on her personal life makes it an even more interesting book than I think it would be otherwise, which it already is. But the fact that there is this this core of truth to it, you know, this is this is someone like bearing their soul in a very real way. Yeah. And, and in a way that like is ugly but also beautiful and like 
ambiguous. Like I, I really want to get into kind of the the kind of tragicomic nature of this text as we discuss, but the fact that yeah, you can you can just smell the resentment in certain passages towards characters who are clearly based on people she knew in real life and did not like. Well, and too, um, also sort of she's writing about you know uh, lesbian relationships way before that was a thing. And importantly, she didn't actually like getting labeled uh, as like a lesbian author or that this was a lesbian book, even though it deals with like love between women and other sort of gender issues. And I think that's also an interesting sort of author text relationship and that there are people who claim this as being a, you know, canon of lesbian literature. And the author herself goes, uh, I didn't want that. I was never a lesbian. I just love Thelma. Uh, was her quote, which I think is also really interesting in terms of like even autofiction or death of the author, like claiming something as being part of the tradition versus like neglecting that or, or denying it. Yeah, the more I kind of read up on this book, it's it's got a really interesting place. And I guess we'll say the canon. Uh, it's what I, I kind of think of as like sub canonical texts where, again, you have the you have the canon, you have Dickens and uh, James Joyce and, you know, those big names where it's like even people who don't read know those titles, those authors. And then you have, again, people like Juna Barnes, who people who read have heard of this book and even people, maybe people who haven't, maybe people who do read even haven't heard of her. But there is like a, a kind of level of the literary world where this is a canonical text. And from what I could tell in kind of my supplementary reading for this week, that's that's very much kind of the queer lit sphere, the queer theory sphere. Uh, and I think you you mentioned this to me as probably it's, it's typically thought of as kind of the first text in kind of modern English lit that's directly dealing with like a lesbian relationship, you know, in, in a non kind of metaphorical or like a lighted way. Yeah, I think... There was a book of poetry, and forgive me, I don't have it pulled up, that she published very early on, too, like, I believe before 1920, that was very, like, non-metaphorical about, like, a lesbian relationship, and it made it through. Like, nobody stopped it because they didn't, they couldn't even comprehend that it was published. Wow. But I don't know if she is the first, but she's definitely one of the first. Yeah. Like... (sighs) Again, it's so interesting that, again, she she despite the fact this book has been taken up so strongly by queer readers and queer critics, I do think it's really again, that that makes that. Fact that she did not think of herself as like a lesbian and another quote I saw from her was like that she did not want this book to like create a bunch of little lesbians. It's so interesting. Like, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's someone, again, kind of rejecting the the heroic status kind of being offered to them in a way that you don't see most writers doing. (laughs) Also, um, I I didn't mention this, but sort of when she does break up with Thelma in her actual life, things are very difficult. Uh, And she wrote this play, The Antiphon, which, uh, you know, is I don't know if we have time to get into, but it was sort of like her kind of exercising some demons from her life. And then she just kind of moved back to Greenwich Village and was like a recluse for like 40 years. And like people would try to like come talk to her and she just wouldn't talk to them. Uh, and there's a famous story that E.E. E. Cummings used to yell 
every time he got out of his apartment because he lived near her. Are you still alive, Juna? <laughs> so because she was just the old lady that lived in her apartment and drank a lot. And she apparently was writing, but she didn't show anyone that except for the antiphon, which came out in 1958. So there's almost like a kind of like J.D. Salinger-esque, like spurning of kind of public author identity and sort of like her fans and that kind of stuff. I think that's so interesting because like when I think about this text, I think that the big questions it's asking are about identity and your like personal sense of identity and the way that like that is internally processed, but also, you know, kind of only exists in the context of like the social sphere you find yourself in. You know, we have these ideas about ourselves, but we only can process them in relation to other people. And so this kind of becoming a recluse is this rejection of the social sphere of the self uh, in this way that I think the the really hard parts of this text, like it makes sense how how you kind of get from the, the hard parts of, of Nightwood to becoming the Greenwich Village uh, recluse. E. Cummings is is checking the, the status of every morning. <laughs> Yeah, your E.E. E. Cummings check-in. <laughs> uh, yeah, so what, should we should we jump in, or do we, yeah, is there anything else you want to talk before? No, I mean, let's jump right in. I, I think we've kind of beaten around the bush enough, and like we said, there's there's probably not, there's no like best way to tackle this text. I think we kind of just got to dive right in. So... This is not like a plot book, listeners, but uh, I am going to start off with the the opening scene because I really enjoy the opening of this book. I think it has a lot of resonances aesthetically uh, with other texts we've talked about. So we open with a birth. Uh, we open with the birth of our. He's not a, the protagonist. He's the protagonist of like the first chapter, I guess, and then he kind of recedes a bit in the text as as the as the story as it were goes on and that is felix um what's his last name uh volkbein felix volkbein yeah uh so felix volkbein is born to his mother uh hedvig volkbein and his father guido volkbein guido is crucially a a jew an Italian Jew who has pretended to be a baron uh, basically to make himself more interesting and like to increase his like business prospects uh, kind of by by shearing away his Jewish identity. And he's he's kind of tricked this uh, woman into into believing he's a nobleman so that she'll marry him. And they have a son Christian, too. Yes, uh, because and, by becoming a baron, he will be Christian and and not uh, practicing Jewish faith. Yes. So he marries this woman, Hedvig. They have uh, their son, Felix. Uh, they both die. Uh, Guido dies before Felix is born and uh, Hedvig dies very soon afterwards. So Felix is kind of this orphan, but he grows up with this sense of himself as having this uh, baronial title, even though he does not seem to. It, it, it is not something that is uh, he's not accepted into the, the company of people who who have titles and, and kind of this interwar Europe he finds himself in as a, a young man. And he has to kind of invent one. So he gets some fake portraits of his parents 
Uh, he becomes obsessed with nobility and tradition uh, and and history. And a lot of the first chapter is sort of like describing his obsession with this uh, and the need to kind of continue his own line and thus secure like a son as well. There's sort of like an importance to kind of like keep the Volkbinds going uh, because they are somewhat related to the Habsburgs, although the, the connection is a little, I think, tenuous. So. I, I think within the scope of the text, it's not even tenuous. It's purely fictitious. Yeah. But again, we, I, I think you're, we have something very interesting because uh, there's obviously some echoes of the Gothic here. We have, again, kind of the decaying noble house. But uh, crucially, it's a farce. The The decaying house is, it's like the uh, mansion in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's <laughs> this pastiche of the Gothic. Uh, for the sake of putting on airs to some degree. And what I think is is really cool here is is this opening, I think, makes it very clear that this text is, at least on some level, supposed to be read as comedic. There's a lot yeah. of images in this book that I think read as, as uncanny in, on one way, as comedic in other ways, but I think like the overall tone I got from a lot of criticism of this book is that it's a lot of people read this as like a, a straightforwardly like kind of tragic text. And I think that that is kind of the wrong way to go about it. I think that Juno Barnes is being very playful with us from the jump, kind of owing to her modernist sensibilities. There's a great and funny bit too, that he only keeps a cook and a, I think valet or butler in this fake crumbling mansion because they remind him of, famous royal personages <laughs> so yeah, yeah the, the maid looks like victoria <laughs> yeah he's like ah victoria like he only kind of wants to be reminded of these things uh without you know actually experiencing them and then in this sort of air of fake titles he falls in with circus people and and circus people also have fake titles uh and uh anna you actually had pointed out when he encounters a trapeze artist there's something going on with uh the presentation of the trapeze artist that should clue us into there's more going on here than just like, look at this guy who's kind of like obsessed with surface appearances, you know, because he thinks that's how I, I should act. Uh, there's more going on here with that trapeze artist. Oh, Frau man. Yes. Um, which I did not notice until my second read through. Um, there's a line about Frau man. Uh, but Frau Man literally translates into, like, Miss Man. And when describing Frau Man, they talk about one somehow felt they ran through her as designed runs through the hard holiday candies and the bulge in the groin where she took the bar. One foot caught in the flex of the cap was solid, specialized, as polished as oak. Which, to me, kind of signals that Frau Man is perhaps doing drag. Um, there's a lot in this novel. Yeah, doing drag in the context of a circus uh, with an assumed identity as well. And so the, uh, she meets uh, Felix, who is, again, assumed identity. He falls in with circus people. He likes them a lot more than actual royalty because they all have sort of assumed personages. And there's this kind of like kinship he gets. And I think, John, like in the opening, if it's sort of like a satire of this kind of person, when he starts like getting into the circus, it's still comedic. But suddenly you're like, OK, this is what Felix is actually looking for. You know, not like kind of decaying nobility, but like kinship with people who kind of create identities out of, you know, for themselves in this kind of like 
uh, you know, European period. Yeah, yeah. I mean, crucially, a lot of the people he's he's interacting with in the circus, they're other kind of social outcasts. I think that the the text is a little ambiguous into how much uh, uh, Felix kind of understands his own Jewishness. Uh, he clearly still like holds these baronial pretensions that his father uh, claimed to distance himself from his Judaism. But there are other passages where he is very clearly like he knows he's Jewish. He's uh, kind of partaking in, in ethnic comedy with uh, a friend of his uh, where he's being fun of his friend for being Irish. His friends making fun of him for being Jewish. But, you know, the the circus folk, again, it's transvestites. There are. Uh, black people, there are other like ethnic minorities uh, involved. And so clearly there there is this sense that he cannot actually like enter the the rarefied spheres of actual nobility. so he he kind of has to settle for this, you know, demimon, this this kind of strange other world, uh, this night world, if you will, uh, where he can just slip in and be who he wants to be uh in a way that's that's very cool and very interesting <laughs> yeah and and also sort of like a, a little bit after uh the opening he like goes to some count's house and the count isn't there yet and and he walks in and and dr matthew o'connor is basically just monologuing in front of everyone i gotta say matthew probably my mvp character just because he gets the most like outlandish things uh, but dr matthew o'connor is sort of like his contact for this night world uh and uh importantly you know brushing past matthew for a second when the count finally shows up he just goes get out of here <laughs> like he's like i don't want you guys here so like everyone there just kind of like ends up at the bar so like suddenly it's like uh frauman matthew o'connor and felix are all just kind of like hanging out at the bar basically uh, and that's like, you know, the real book, uh, you know, starts there, even though the the opening is, of course, important. But like, yeah, he basically meets all these interesting nighttime characters, you know, while he's trying to perhaps ingratiate himself with like actual nobility. But as soon as the couch shows up at his own party, he's like, just get out of here. Scram, basically. There's like an odd absence in this book. So this is a book kind of about, again, this night world, this underworld where there are gay people and lesbians and transvestites and Jews uh, all kind of in the backdrop of 1920s Europe, which was this time of very fraught social conditions and, you know, lead up to to fascism. World War Two, I think, is very much kind of in this book's DNA. But we don't have a lot of scenes of of these characters interacting with kind of. Authority, as we would understand yeah. it, like. There's yeah. very few scenes of these people. Hey, there's very few scenes that take place during the day when people like the Count would probably be more active and empowered to do what they want. There aren't a lot of scenes of people kind of involved with the police or with other functionaries of the state. There's kind of a, a lack of, of this patriarchal or like heterosexual or Christian state authority that really intrude on this demimon that we're we're viewing right now. And I think the count is one kind of showing up and kicking everyone out of the party is really one of the only times that happens. And it kind of ends up being a good thing. Yeah, because then the characters get together. Also, I think the only time I can think of is when uh oh. Thelma, not Thelma, um, I guess we should say Nora Flood, who is the Juna Barnstan and is telling Matthew about the time Robin Vote 
who was at the, Th- the Thelma Woods stand and got so drunk that the cops had to show up. And even then, they're kind of like a minor, uh, you know, appearance. So along those lines, it's through Matthew that uh, Felix meets Robin Vogt, who is his sort of like, here's the woman that I will marry and continue my line with. Uh, and Robin Vogt's character introduction is really interesting because she's like sort of she like faints and like the the doctor is called and she's like lying sort of supine on like a couch with all of these like plants around her is, is sort of what happens. And like the language gets almost like it reminds me of those like uh, portraits of Ophelia by like the uh, I guess it'd be the romantics kind of like a lot of naturalist imagery. And she's sort of like lying supine. And like Felix is like immediately soup, uh, smitten with by her, and he's like, ah, "I want to, I want to meet this woman." And and Matthew is there. Uh, there's a great bit <laughs> where Matthew is he's a doctor, so he's called to sort of resuscitate her. And he, after he resuscitates her, he immediately like pockets a hundred a uh, hundred franc note that somebody left on the table in in what is described as like the hands of a conjurer, where like everyone's looking at him doing something else, and he slips like a dollar in his pocket. Well, I guess it's more than a dollar. And then Felix sees that and is like, okay, I'm forever bound to this man. <laughs> like, like I will, I will take care of my, my, my degenerate doctor friend who steals from people he's supposed to be uh, protecting. So. Well, funnier than that, he also like puts on her perfume and puts on like lipstick and Felix is just like, oh God, but also like, I can never leave this man. Like we're bound in this together now. Well, yeah, we, okay. We should mention about Matthew O'Connor. Um, uh, just briefly, Matthew O'Connor is a gynecologist and also, you know, a, a doctor as well. Uh, but also Matthew expresses at one point that he should have been born a woman. And that's sort of like his uh, preoccupation with identity is that he cannot exist the way that he would like to exist. Yes. I feel like we're going to get to him a little bit more. He the we're still kind of in the, the first or we're in the second chapter right now. I think uh, we're going to get a little bit later to his kind of sermon <laughs> sermonizing moment and that's what i think we'll yeah. really kind of get into yeah the the sticky question of his identity but if you guys don't object i'd really like to read uh the passage where uh we first meet robin because a i think that it shows off what an amazing prose stylist uh juna barnes is and i think that there's a lot kind of to unpack here about like the way this text like is looking at gender and art and a lot of other things so On a bed, surrounded by a confusion of potted plants, exotic palms, and cut flowers, faintly oversung by the notes of unseen birds, which seem to have been forgotten, left without the usual silencing cover, which, like cloaks on funeral urns, are cast over their cages at night by good housewives, half flung off the support of the cushions from which, in a moment of threatened consciousness, she had turned her head, lay the young woman, heavy and disheveled. Her legs, in white flannel trousers, were spread as in a dance, the thick, lacquered pumps looking too lively for the arrested step. Her hands, long and beautiful, lay on either side of her face. The perfume of her body exhaled was of the quality of that earth flesh, fungi, which smells of captured dampness and yet is so dry, overcast with the odor of oil of amber, which is an inner malady of the sea, making her seem as if she had invaded a sleep incautious and entire. Her flesh was the texture of plant life, and beneath it one sensed a frame, broad, porous, and sleep-worn, as if sleep were a decay fishing her beneath the visible surface. But her head there was an effulgence 
as a phosphorus glowing about the circumference of a body of water, as if her life lay through her in ungainly luminous deteriorations. The troubling structure of the born somnambule, who lives in two worlds, meet of child and desperado. Like a painting by that Dunier Rousseau, she seemed to lie in a jungle trapped in a drawing room, in the apprehension of which the walls had made their escape, thrown in among the carnivorous flowers as their ration, set the property of an unseen dompteur, half lord, half promoter, over which one expects to hear the strains of an orchestra of woodwind render a serenade which will popularize the wilderness. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, again, I think <laughs> this gets into what I, I like about the modernists in general, but I think Juno Barnes in particular. I'm, uh, as a writer, I've always been one of those people I love my enjambments. I love just uh, sticking as many phrases in between my like the the important bits of my sentences as possible. It's a reason why I've never uh, been able to kind of get on with the MFA set. And I think Juna Barnes does that better than anybody else can. Most of those paragraphs are like one sentence, but they all just have so many like beautifully descriptive and like evocative phrases just kind of thrown in between semicolons or commas or m dashes who doesn't love a good m dash yeah it, to me reading it is like you know there's that old line about uh cubism and seeing different sides of some perspective but you get so much like sensory notional poetic detail that like you're almost just like overwhelmed and like even in that like you can almost see all of the themes of the book like she's both asleep and awake uh, the interior of the house is a jungle. So there's like sort of like a decadent kind of uh, Art Nouveau image that's put there. Like uh, there's some uh, animalness versus like, you know, mankind. Like there's everything's just like jammed into those three paragraphs. And you, it's almost like overwhelming. <laughs> like there's just so much like going on that you're just kind of like taken aback. Like you're you're just like borne away by it. Yeah, I read a really cool essay and I don't have it pulled up in front of me. So it'll be in the show notes, folks. Uh, that looked at this as like an ekphrastic text. And Ben, I know you and I have talked a lot about ekphrasis in like our personal conversations. And I think that's so cool. Like she's basically being described like Keats's like Grecian urn. Yeah. Like the the imagery is just spilling out like beyond what you could even show in a painting or in a photograph of this person if they did exist uh, just by the power of the language here. And I think it, really just shows what an amazing talent Juna Barnes is as a stylist. Yeah, T.S. Eliot talks about that a little bit in his introduction, where he talks about how beautiful the writing is and how it's not just prose, but also poetry. And it makes me think of the first time I read this book, where um, I'm not one to read more than 100 pages a day, typically, but I think I like stopped breathing and just read the whole thing through. And I was just completely enamored by the writing. Uh, well, what's great about it, too, is like... Um... I feel like it's also easy to read this all in one sitting because the characters are often given like a lot of space to talk. So you sort of like, you just get like one set of characters, like one person talks. And while that can seem like monotonous, it's just, she's so good that it's like totally fine. If a character is like talking, cause you're getting like uncut Juna Barnes prose for like, yeah, 150 pages. I also feel like there's an interesting level where like so much of this text is dialogue, at least in certain chapters. And I feel like 
this book has reminded me a lot. It's it's drawn up a lot of memories of memories of crocodile, and I feel like we said something a little bit similar in our review of that book. Uh, kind of use utilizing dialogue kind of lets you, I think, be even more indulgent with your prose sometimes because you can put it in the mouth of a person. So it doesn't feel like you're as the author being uh, you're not being excessive. You're not being uh, overly ornamental. It's the character who is yeah. doing those things. Like, I think the. Dr. O'Connor. Um, monologue, I guess we'll, we'd say we're going to get to here in a little bit, really would not work the same way if it was not like kind of being spoken by this character. Uh, and I think that Juna Barnes is, is very smart about how she uses dialogue in this. Uh, no, I was thinking about this time in this book, uh, how nothing ever actually happens, but everybody talks about what happens. You very rarely see anything happening in real time. Yeah. And I think the Dr. O'Connor monologues work because it's almost like Barnes can sense you stopping, like starting to get a little bit bored with it. And O'Connor will literally call you out and be like, hold on one second. Like, hold on. I'm almost to the point. And then he'll just go on for more pages. <laughs> or he'll like, he'll, he'll say something like, oh, that reminds me of tiny O'Caffrey. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, 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 you like, you like refer to like things or people that like, that aren't clearly explained also, which is like really funny to me. It makes him feel like more of a real person where he makes like some reference to something that he just doesn't explain. Uh, and like, you can look it up if you want, but like, he's just so like, he's like, yeah, mile a minute. All right. Uh, do we have any more we want to say kind of about the prose or about this, the scene with Robin? I do. I do have one other prose example. I just want to share. It's, it's a, about, it's a little bit smaller. Um, this is in from that same chapter when Felix is realizing the importance of Matthew to him uh, as the altar of a church would present, but a barren stylization, but for the uncalculated offerings of the confused and humble as the corsage of a woman is made suddenly martial and sorrowful by the, Oh wait, no, has made suddenly marital and sorrowful by the rose thrust among the more decorous blooms by the hand of a lover suffering the violence of the overlapping of the permission to bestow a last embrace and its withdrawal making a vanishing and infinitesimal bullseye out of that that had a moment before been a buoyant and showy bosom by drawing time out of his bowels for a lover knows two times that which he has given and that which he must take. So Felix was astonished to find that the most touching flowers laid on the altar he had raised to his imagination were placed there by the people of the underworld and that the reddest was to be the rose of the doctor. <laughs> the, the fact that she goes back to the corsage image at the end just blows me away. Like, like there's like that huge opening. And then it's like, and it was just a, a rose uh, that I am giving the doctor. And I'm saying, you're, you're going to be my person. Uh, like it just opens and closes so nicely. It's, it's great. One thing I will also say that uh, I find interesting, you know, Ben, you and I just both read a passage and we, they weren't short passages either. And we really did not like miss a beat. I, you know, not the, I'm not trying to brag, uh, dear listener, but uh, in the past when Ben and I have tried to do, uh, have read passages from the text we've talked about, a lot of times we've kind of had to do like a take or two to get it right, or we just kind of lose ourselves in the passage and have to kind of cut it back together, uh, open kimono here. But in this case, for both of those passages, we did not. And I think that, again, that just really shows like how strong this prose is like the fact that it just carries you through like that. And you're not 
getting lost despite how complex these sentences are and again the the different levels they're working on i i think yeah it really speaks to the uh the quality of the writing here so i i guess we should move on to um what happens to felix so yeah. felix attempts to woo uh robin vote and uh she sort of accepts it and uh he's trying to kind of show her uh, his uh, respect and reverence for tradition and uh, she bears him a child and she realizes that she does not want this child and she does not want to be in this relationship uh, and this is the chapter it's called the sleepwalker uh, La Sonambule which she was a reference to in that thing John read and uh, it's kind of tragic because like, he, like at one point, like Felix is like, I don't know what's going wrong. And then later he's like, oh, I've been deceiving her the whole time. And she's sort of refusing to accept this. Basically, we would say like position that sort of society has said, like you should have. Um, and she rejects it. Yeah, she uh, and, almost yeah. murders their child. Yeah, she's holding the child really up high in the air and then brings the kid down. Yeah. And uh, so she she basically exits and and leaves Felix with with this child who uh we'll we'll see a little bit more later in the book and uh Robin flees to America which is where the next relationship in her life starts up so this brings us to chapter 3 which focuses on her relationship with uh Nora so uh Ben I know you said earlier Nora is our uh Juna Barnes uh kind of stand in uh, whereas Robin is the Thelma stand-in. So Nora, does anyone want to talk about Nora as a character? I guess I will say that with Nora, it's interesting because, you know, she's presented kind of as also being an American who runs a salon uh, where various people talk. And she's kind of like in the center of it. Uh, but, you know, it says that she hadn't really quite like given herself to some person. Uh, there's bits about how like she's sort of, you know, been in relationships with people but she hasn't quite like given herself in a romantic relationship until she meets Robin. Um, and with Nora, I feel like I could be wrong, but I feel like with Nora, it's almost like Nora is kind of like our witness as to what happens. Like we don't get a whole lot about Nora as opposed to like, like we get stuff from her perspective, but like when things go wrong with Robin, she goes to visit the doctor. And a lot of that is just the doctor talking so like Nora is kind of like a, our stand in, but Nora doesn't like ever quite take center stage. I feel like as much as the other characters. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that if she's the Juna Barnes stand in, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like she's not like, you know, record scratch, You're probably wondering how I end up here. It's like it's like, you know, Nora is kind of introduced and then like is in a relationship with Robin and we get them together more than we get Nora on her own. Uh, and then afterwards, when they break up, um, Nora goes to talk to the doctor about what happened. Um, although the Night Watch chapter does have the most Nora because it is kind of her perspective on the relationship with Robin. Yeah. I think she seems like she's in the background, but she really comes back around at the end uh, with the Go Down Matthew chapter. But she does stay in the background quite a bit until that end point where you're always kind of thinking of her, but not actually. And in their relationship with Robin, uh, there's a lot of attention paid to how they decorate the house. 
they talk about the house is sort of like a museum to their relationship. Uh, I believe does it does Robin give her a doll or am I thinking of later? Robin gives her a doll, um, and then it ends up it shows back up later. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so um, and the doll is kind of like the child that they can't have, uh, and and the child sort of like representative of the life they have together that is not actually having a kid which Robin did have, but didn't want. And uh, so this is sort of like kind of, I would say fraught image of kind of like, yeah, like sterility relationships, not procreating um, their life together. And the relationship ends up souring because basically as, as Anna had said, um, uh, Thelma, who's Robin wanted the world and Nora and, you know, Nora, who is Juna just wanted her. And so she goes out to bars. She starts seeking the attention of other people. And uh, this obviously upsets Nora. And that kind of uh, precipitates the the relationship ending. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's it, I'd say if, if, if there's like a tragic chapter in this book, I feel like this is the, the tragic chapter. Again, I, yeah. I got a lot of echoes of of Chum, um Miao Jen in in this chapter in terms of kind yeah of, yeah again the struggling with with like how do you live as as like a a pure person in a society where it's like the purpose of relationships is social reproduction and you can't do that and how do you make sense of your life in that context and people respond to that in different ways Robin responds to it through yeah this promiscuity whereas uh, Nora is trying to kind of I don't know if she's trying to necessarily fully uh, imitate like the, the norms of like heterosexual monogamy, but she, she does want a monogamous relationship. She wants uh, Nora and she wants Robin and her to be enough for each other. Uh, even without this, this child that can, you know, that, that at least in, in kind of the idealized image of a heterosexual relationship would be the culmination and the yeah. purpose of the relationship. Yes, um, and I think that goes back to the doll, because um, the doll is kind of a symbol for a child. I think the book, I believe somebody says that outright at some point. But it's very yeah. interesting, because if you go back to when Robin was with Felix, she would hold the child up and like at the last minute not dash the child down. But she does end up, near the end of the relationship, holding that doll up and just smashing it on the ground and saying like it's over. But I did want to loop back very quickly to Nora Flood's very first line in this book, which I think is just the funniest line in this book, uh, where to set the scene, they are at the couch house and uh, Matthew Connor and Felix are talking and going on their big, long rant about the church and making fun of being Irish versus Jewish. And at some point she comes in and she just says, are you both really saying what you mean or are you just talking? which I think is the funniest and best first line. And it's very fun to think about as you read more of the book and you get into more of the monologues. Yeah, because like, that's like the, the sort of like uh, the straight man coming in and being like, would you stop joking? Like, like, <laughs> yeah. like, it's like, like, like stop doing your respective bits. You know? like, like, yeah. Cause like, like Felix and Matthew are just doing bits at each other. And she's just like, do you actually mean this? Like, yeah. So we have any more we want to say about this? I feel like I, I like this chapter a lot, but I feel like uh, 
a lot of the the content here kind of gets colored in more and more by the the rest of the book. I'd say this is kind yeah. of the chapter where the action is, so to speak. And then the rest of the the book is really dealing with the fallout of this chapter. But, but the the last thing I will say is that there's sort of like a doomed funeral error to this chapter because they're like oh this is going to be the relationship and it's like it's it was over before it started it's like the feeling you get basically like when you're reading it and it's sort of like uh yeah it's sort of like it's very like doomed and fatalistic yeah i believe like at the very beginning of the chapter there's the line uh nora had the face of all people who love the people a face that would be evil when she found out that to love without criticism is to be betrayed so it's like immediately it's just like this is bad this is not going to end well. Right. So that brings us to the fourth and shortest chapter in the book, which is The Squatter, uh, <laughs> which is about a character I think we've referenced already, uh, Ms. Jenny Petherbridge, who Judah Barnes is clearly not a fan of whoever this is based on. Bar Barnes gives everybody a little bit of leeway, except for Jenny Petherbridge. So Jenny is... This very strange woman uh, who basically the whole of chapter four is just kind of dedicated to describing her and kind of a little bit of, of kind of how she enters into the lives of these other characters. So she is a, a widow, a middle aged woman who's been married four times, each of her husbands having wasted away and died <laughs> presumably from having to deal four. with her all the time four husbands <laughs> yeah, so. uh she's got this very odd physicality to it again this kind of almost a practic description where she looks old yet expectant of age uh she seemed to be steaming in the vapors of someone else about to die still she gave <laughs> an odor to the mind for their purely mental smells that have no reality of a woman about to be accouché which uh means going to the birthing bed so she's this this very strange woman she's like somehow old and young at the same time like sterile and pregnant she gives off this weird <laughs> mental smell she <laughs> she like, steals describes, she's a robber also yeah she it says she yeah she like lives basically surrounded by other people's things that she's either borrowed or have just kind of ended up in her possession other people's books other people's things the only things that she seems to kind of like are uh tiny ivory and jade elephants which she thinks are like good luck and it says that she kind of tiptoes around her own house because she feels like she's basically just surrounded by other people's things and she can't risk like damaging them yeah i love this line uh when anyone was witty about a contemporary event she would look perplexed and a little dismayed as if someone had done something they really should not have been done. <laughs> Therefore, her attention had been narrowed down to listening for faux pas. <laughs> so like, yeah, so she's just sort of like, did somebody say something they shouldn't have said? Like, she's just doing that the whole time and like not kind of actually trying to be, uh, you know, witty or interesting. I think what's very funny about, again, this description of her is that I think out of everything Judah Barnes hates this character for, it's the fact that she's a poser. A lot of yeah. A is made of the fact that she gives off the appearance of being well-read, but doesn't read very much. <laughs> and so she kind of somehow ends up becoming kind of a hanger-on to this uh, kind of circus world. And she ends up meeting uh, the characters, the, the kind of rest of the cast at the opera. And somehow her and Robin kind of end up together, which uh, drives... 
uh, drives Nora crazy. It says, uh, when she fell in love, it was with a perfect fury of accumulated dishonesty. She became instantly a dealer in secondhand and therefore incalculable emotions. As from the solid archives of usage, she had stolen or appropriated the dignity of speech. So she appropriated the most passionate love that she knew. Nora, Nora's for Robin. She was a squatter by instinct. So, uh, so I have a question. I, I don't kind of know the answer, but why do we think Robin left Nora for squatter? Uh, do we have an answer for that? Because, like, again, it should be like Nora actually loves her, and Jenny is just like this ridiculous woman. But, but why do why do we think Robin left? Yeah, that's a tough question. I, I feel like we again we we get more of Nora's psychology than we do of Robin's. Robin is is really kind of the cipher through a lot of the novel. She's constantly having other people's desires projected onto her first. Um, yeah. First Felix's and then Nora's. I wonder if with Jenny, it is kind of this thing where. Jenny is someone who like cannot help but be an orbiter. She does not ha like she has like a, a an even weaker sense of self than Robin has. And so I don't know if there's kind of this idea that. She can't like if, if if Robin is is the one who. Robin's like more in control somehow, or I wonder if it's just out of this like perverse desire to hurt other people by uh, choosing this person who sucks uh, <laughs> and who is so clearly like, again, from the standpoint of like Juna Barnes clearly doesn't like this character, nor clearly doesn't like this character. Like the fact that the people who were kind of supposed to think are like cool in this book, like clearly hate this woman and like wish that she wasn't like hanging around their cafes and uh you know opera shows like i i wonder if it's just yeah this kind of perverse uh desire to just kind of lash out in a weird way and kind of just be like no i'm i'm not what you people think i am yeah and, and i think that jives with what you said about like sort of people projecting their desires onto robin and then robin's like yeah i i, I don't i don't want to do that anymore basically so also i will say um if, as Anna said, uh, the squatter is an heiress, that's just uh, another reason why rich people suck. <laughs> so <laughs> they just you just bought your way into this cool club and you can't even hang, basically. So, well, it's something we haven't. I, I just thought of something as well, Ben. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, uh, I, that was the end of my thought. Rich people suck. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so we, haven't, we haven't referenced it yet, but something that they make about Robin. So we haven't really given like there was a physical description of her in that first passage, but kind of later in that same chapter, they kind of describe her physical appearance a little more. And she's described as, I guess we would say like today, like she's kind of masked. She's, she's not butch, but she definitely kind of looks like a boy a little bit. Yeah. Is the implication. Uh, and I think that there's clearly this element of her where she's trying to reject uh, what a woman is kind of supposed to look like, but in a weird way that makes her, or desirable to the certain class of people, which again then leads into, like we were saying, the projection of desire onto her and the trying to make her into this, this perfect image of what they want her to be. And I think she just kind of has this fundamental like contrariness in her character that she's going to express one way or the other. And I think dating Jenny Petherbridge is part of that, that perversity. Yeah, they do. I do want to get around to like some of the gender ambiguity of this book, but yes, like pretty much any time to describe Robin, they do make a 
she does make a point to be like she looks a little bit boyish and she's often wearing trousers yeah um i think on my first read of this although i'm less sure of this now i feel like her staying with jenny was because i think she just wants to inflict the most pain she could and jenny is very insecure in that relationship yeah like it drives Jenny insane to watch her being promiscuous and flirting around. There's the carriage scene in this chapter where she's there with the English girl and she's like flirting with the English girl right in front of Jenny. And Jenny's like having a breakdown about it. Um, yeah. What did we think that like, so that chapter ends with Jenny attacking uh, Robin and then the child is like, let me out of this carriage. And then later when Matthew tells it, Matthew screams, which I think is kind of like a funny, like, I don't know whose account is the real one, but we get two accounts, like one of the kids screaming and then one of Matthew screaming, like at witnessing what happens. Yeah. And the kid is interesting because in each relationship so far, like she has the son with Felix. She doesn't want the son. She has the doll, which does end up in Jenny Partridge's house, by the way. Jenny yeah. Partridge has both the doll and a picture of, I think, both Nora and Robin, or one that Robin took for Nora. So she puts upon these items, but the child, the niece, her name is Sylvia, I think, becomes the next thing, like the next child for Robin to try to take care of. Um and the child is absolutely enamored with Robin in the beginning, and Robin is absolutely enamored with the child. But I don't know if we want to get to it yet, but that does not last. And so I think it's interesting how each relationship that Robin enters in, somebody tries to put in a stand-in for a child. Yeah, I think that, again, there's this element where, again, the relationships have this social function, and for most of society, that is understood to be like procreation, having children. And so even if people are doing it consciously, like they're always putting Robin in this position of, no, you need to be a mother. Like that's what you're supposed to do. Even again, in these ostensibly lesbian relationships, there's still this desire to replicate social reproduction. And yeah. Robin, because she is like kind of fundamentally, uh, I, I got to find a different word for it, but perverse, like she, she just wants the opposite of what she's told, I think. She rejects it every time, often violently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's also too like the that child is almost like the the symbol of their relationship. And it happens to be like the hetero social reproduction one, but it's like it's almost like there needs to be something that was like proof of our relationship. Yeah. Whether it's a real child or a or a doll yeah, or yeah. A, just a kid from somewhere else. Yeah. And I think we talk about this later in the book, but I think the thing about Robin is that she wants to be missed. And I think because Jenny is so mm. clear about being so jealous and stuff, like she wants to do her own thing, but she wants somebody to not want her to do it. I feel like that's part mm. of her motivation in life. Yeah, she's contrary. Yeah. Yeah, because Nora misses her, uh, which I guess we can go to the 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 first well, i guess i feel like the doctor gets two monologues but the first one is the biggest one so nora uh is distraught and goes to find the doctor and she doesn't really tell the doctor she's coming and she goes in like the middle of the night and the doctor lets her in and the doctor is described as expecting someone else and is basically dressed as a woman 
Uh, he's described as wearing his gown is one of the lines. He's, he's wearing said. a he's wearing a wig and a nightgown. Uh, and it's it's very interesting. There's there are uh, allusions to Little Red Riding Hood. Basically, the doctor, like when he sees that it's Nora and not whoever he was actually expecting, he like gets in bed and like pulls the covers up so that uh, he's concealing as much of like his body as he can. Uh, I assume he's still wearing the wig, so I'm sure he still looks ridiculous. But uh, even Nora's like, oh, this is the big bad wolf. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, She even says uh, children know something that they can't say. They prefer both Little Red Riding Hood and the wolf in the same bed. Uh, so like there's like a kind of like, yeah, like a fusion of, of the two. No, uh, there's just another comical moment in there where he is wearing the wig, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah, he just like rips it off and just throws it and Nora just pretends not to see him. <laughs> yeah, that line uh, when he goes, you see, you can ask me about anything is, yeah. I think, my favorite line in the novel, because it's like this complete like this is who I am kind of like <laughs> in, in, a, in a novel about like putting on appearances and identities and stuff. It's like totally unguarded. And that was like I, that's what I knew this book was amazing. Like I, I've been enjoying it, but like that particular exchange really sealed the deal for me. I think there's also kind of like a secret agent kind of element to it where it's like, okay, uh, you know my secret identity. So if you tell me any secret, you know, I can't rat you out because you can tell anyone like it's mutually assured destruction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can tell me, but you'll have to kill me. <laughs> yeah. But um, I, this is my favorite part of the book. I don't know about you guys. Like you said, Ben, uh, <laughs> Matthew, mighty grain of salt, Dante O'Connor, uh, all-time MVP character in the Infinite Library Hall of Fame, raises uh, women's jer women's size jersey to the rafters. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. We, maybe we all monologue as well as he can. <laughs> but I wanted to uh, draw. I, I wanted to bring something up here that I I did not think about when I was reading this scene. I read a really really cool essay as I was prepping for this uh, one. It's called "Laughing at Leviticus." Uh, it's by a scholar of modernism by the name of Jane Marcus, uh, who, from what I gather, is a, a pretty big deal in kind of like feminist uh readings of modernist literature kind of circles but she points out that this is a parody of like freudian psychoanalysis so we have the patient coming to the doctor uh but everything's kind again everything's topsy-turvy the patient is kind of the one who's a little cagey and doesn't want to talk the doctor is uh eight their psychological psychological hang-ups are just on full display for everyone to see uh, they are, they're the one talking the whole time, you know, kind of classic Freudian psychoanalysis. It's the patient talking while, you know, Dr. Freud is, is sitting there silently, just, you know, asking the occasional questions, taking copious notes. Um, and so it's this inversion of, of the psychoanalytic scene. And that really kind of opened the scene up even more for me. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, and again, I think that this is another scene where, when I first read it, like there's obviously comedic elements here. The the doctor being a cross dresser is uh, very silly on one level, but there's another reading where it's very tragic. He's he's this yeah. person who again can't quite seem to make sense of his identity. Uh, but again, then I read it again through this lens, and there is still that tragic element there. But it becomes for me so much more comedic. It's so much more ridiculous that this is what's going on. Uh, <laughs> 
that he also starts like talking about how like the French people know how to incorporate their sins into their lifestyle. And like he's like, we should all be like the French or something like like, like and he starts like doing like cultural analysis as well, like while he's also revealing his yeah, like psychological hang ups and stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah. So yeah, Nora comes to the doctor. She's looking for advice on how to handle her emotional turmoil over this breakup. And the doctor just goes on a tear. He he he, he yeah. Uh <laughs> It, th- this monologue is all over the place. Again, it's it's one of those things. I don't even know where to start with it. There's so much here. There's, you know, he's he's dissecting, like you said, Ben, cultural norms and uh, yeah, lesbian relationships. And uh, there's I, I noticed some really interesting stuff about uh, religion in this dialogue. Uh, there's definitely some kind of references to uh, reincarnation, I think I noticed here. He also uh, talks about cruising too. Cruising, like, like he, yeah, he, he talks about like picking people up in bathrooms uh, and stuff like. So, like, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know where to start with this. Where, where do you guys want to start talking about this? I mean, every time that O'Connor talks, there's a lot. There's a lot to try to digest, and it just goes. Um, I think one of the funny things about the doctor, though, is he really doesn't want to hear any of this. And so his monologues, I think, go so off the rails because he doesn't want to hear any of this from anyone. Yeah, he's clearly like annoyed that Nora's there. And I, yeah, the, the monologue yeah, he was expecting, is... He was expecting somebody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was expecting yeah. someone. <laughs> it's like three in the morning. Uh, he's yeah. presumably waiting on gentleman caller. <laughs> and this right, woman shows yeah. up to complain about her relationship problems to her and uh we've all been there doctor i i've i've been there that's all i'll say um i do want to point out something because there is um oh yeah he refers to himself as a bearded lady at one point it's like goes back to like the carnival imagery um i i do want to note that he does spend a lot of time talking about like what the night means which i think is like kind of too big of a subject to try to pin down for this book. But I do want to note there's a particularly great line um, where he talks about, oh yeah, our bones ache only while the flesh is on them. Stretch it as thin as the temple flesh of an ailing woman, and still it serves to ache the bone and to move the bone about. And in like manner, the night is the skin pulled over the head of day that the day may be in torment. (laughs) And I think like with that, you get a kind of like biblical imagery but also like the importance of like the unconscious or like the other or like the thing that can't be explained by, you know, hetero Christian rationality. Like there's the the doctor is kind of speaking up for that in this in this as a way to kind of talk to Nora. Although I feel like later he gives Nora more concrete advice. I think this time he's literally just riffing about like stuff that's obviously important to the book, but he doesn't sort of directly tell Nora like what to do. Yeah, he's. He's definitely riffing in this one. I think it's also when he talks about the night, he like, when he's talking about like the French versus other people, he talks about like, yeah, because when you wake up in the morning and you try to wash off the night from you, you're making it worse for yourself. Like yeah. you have to own up to the actions that you do in the night. And if you don't, um, you'll be miserable. And I thought that was also interesting. Yeah. So I feel like this is kind of probably the the section where the meat of the rest of our, our conversation is going to go. So I, I feel like, again, let's, let's go beating around the bush and let's, let's really <laughs> dig into some, some stuff here. So yeah. 
Ben, I know you want to talk a little bit about about the doctor as as like a trans character, and I also wanted to talk about that because again, I I think that he's yeah, that, it's it's a fascinating element here. You know, there have been kind of these weird hints earlier in the book, like again when they find Robin in the in the first chapter, and he literally like steals her cosmetics. Uh, we kind of know there's something a little like iffy with this guy before we even get to this point. And then, yeah, we walk in, he's dressed as a woman, he's cross-dressing, uh, presumably for sexual reasons. And as the monologue goes on, he says some really odd things. <laughs> I'm trying to find a specific passage here. Uh, I, I will also say, too, like, as Anna pointed out, when he says, like, it's important to integrate your knight, like your maybe, I don't know, um, not respectable or unconscious or hidden desires into your daily life. He almost can't do that, which is like kind of what, as you were saying, John makes the scene like so tragic and comic because he's trying to tell Nora something that he can't do. Yeah. Um, and like, he, you know, like he wants to have been a woman. He thinks he was born a woman. He, you know, he says like, how come, you know, whenever I hear music, I think I'm a bride. And so like, there's like this, I don't know, like he's speaking, he's trying to give Nora something that he can't have, as you were saying, when he's just waiting for somebody to show up, like, like this is the the, Ill, the most ill opportune time to give this monologue. And yet he's kind of doing it anyway in like, like that essay sounds cool. And like the, yeah, the inversion of the Freudian psychoanalysis. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. I like the idea that he, he, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about a little bit again, back with tears of a crocodile, like the language isn't there for him to like fully describe his experience. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know if the term lesbian was occurring yet. I kind of have to assume it was because uh, Juna Barnes said she wasn't a lesbian, but I don't know when she was being asked about that. So I can't say for sure, but there's definitely this element in this book where it's like, no one quite knows what to do with all these feelings they're having. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, the the doctor, yeah, feels like he was born a woman. Uh, the the Nora and Robin have this relationship. And even though, again, like the the threat in the book is not the idea that like, oh, the cops are going to break their door down and like forcibly separate them and like send them to an asylum or something. You know, that's something that maybe happens a little later in history uh, with, you know, stuff in the 50s and the way that the Red Scare and anti LGBT stuff got tied up together. But there is still this idea that it's like they, these people can't. There's no place for them in society and and this kind of. Night world that they managed to to find. It's still like, yeah, OK, <laughs> it's so interesting. Again, I God, I'm going in circles here, but Ben, what you were saying about how the doctor can't do that. None of these characters can. None of these characters have day lives. They yeah, all just yeah. exist at night. They're all night people. And there is no way for them to to kind of do the Jungian like self-actualization because society won't let them. If even if their psychologies would, which I think the text is pretty ambiguous about whether or not what the doctor is saying here is even possible. Uh like as in terms of like integrating your night with your day. Yeah, I mean, like I think there for him. I think there's a question yeah. there. I think that there is this element where I think even today, I think that there, even though obviously you know LGBT stuff is is much more accepted, we have all this language. I think that 
there are still a lot of debates about whether or not assimilation into kind of like normal society is possible or desirable uh, for queer yeah. people. And yeah, I, I, again, I, I don't know how to talk about this without just going down a rabbit hole that we'd be here all night, but this is just a book that, yeah, I, 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 God. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like we just keep coming up with this interesting stuff and we just are like, it's, it's too big. We can't break it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and too, like the, yeah, I mean, he talks about Jenny. He talks about being the the bearded lady. Yeah, uh, right um, under that bearded lady, I think is one of the one of the quotes that's very oof in this book. Um, which we can circle right back around to O'Connor because he's so interesting. Um, but again, just kind of the premonition of it. It was more than a boy like me who am the last woman left in this world, though I am the bearded lady, could bear, and I went into a ladder of misery watching them and thinking of you and how in the end you'll all be locked together like poor beasts that get their antlers mixed and are found dead that way, their heads fattened with the knowledge of each other they never wanted, having to contemplate each other head on and eye to eye until death. Um, which is the part where he's confessing to her that um, he introduced Robin and Jenny together. Um, and so yeah he's also confessing too so like again yes, the parody yeah, the, the parody of the psychoanalysis or it's like yeah the the guy who's supposed to fix your problems is like actually i made things worse for you <laughs> like like you know so uh, i believe this is also the chapter where he talks about wanting like in depth to crawl back into his mother's womb which is a lot to unpack but it was one of the most interesting if you want to talk about flipping Freudian stuff yeah. on its head yeah, yeah. No, I, again, I, I'm coming back to sort of the, the idea of like, what's this text's like actual viewpoint? And I really keep finding myself wondering, like, does does Juna Barnes like think that there is a way to to integrate this stuff? You know, I I, I think I'm, I'm thinking about now kind of the the. You know, Freudianism kind of relies on this idea that not necessarily that the human being is per like perfectible, but that you can take someone who's suffering, you know, neuroticism, uh, which we can say uh, is <laughs> what Nora and the doctor are suffering from in this scene and, and get them. Well, to they also call it like neurasthenia, I think neurasthenia. And like Felix is like, you might have neurasthenia. And he's like, no, I don't. I don't really care about other people, which is the true basis for this. And neurasthenia was like the catch all diagnosis at the time that would have fit neuroticism or anything else. So, yeah. 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 But there's this idea that you're you can take that person and through psychoanalysis, you can get them to a point not where they're perfect, but where they're capable of the, the, the term that's used is living a life of ordinary unhappiness rather than extraordinary unhappiness, which is what they're currently dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. And. Again, I I feel like this text is very skeptical of that idea. Like, it's never fully brought up, but there's never this idea that like Felix and and Robin could ever have made their relationship work. Right. Or something, yeah. or if if it did, if there was a way for it to work, it would require like a fundamental like castration of their like one of their uh, like selves. Uh, like Robin would have. Robin would have to have like 
she would have like had to have had like a, a lobotomy or something <laughs> and or like or yeah felix would have had to become a different person yeah, yeah. and so i feel like the night self there is this element where it's it's i, th- I think i don't want to go too far here because i i don't feel like i know enough about like Jungian psychoanalysis or even Freudianism to some degree. Like, I feel like it's the the night. It's it's the shadow self. It's the unconscious. It's the part of you that you kind of can't even. Really wrap your head around, like, why you feel this way, like, clearly the night self has a lot to do with, like, fetishism in in, and I mean that, like, in the literal, like, sexual sense, like the doctor has like a cross dressing fetish and he expresses it in these very like high-minded ways in terms of, like he feels like he was like a woman in a past life or or something like that uh but there is like an element where he he sexually enjoys this maybe uh but like he can't he can't explain why like he doesn't have like a, a perfect you know kind of typical Freudian story like oh I'm this way because my father was weak and my mother was the strong one in the relationship and so I uh identify with women more strongly than men or something like that again I I don't want to overstate my knowledge of Freud here but I I feel like he can't even give a a, an accurate accounting of like why he's like this Nora can't give an accurate accounting why she's like this I don't think Robin could give an accurate accounting of why she's like this and I don't know that yeah psychoanalysis can necessarily excavate these parts of ourselves in the way that that maybe not even psychoanalysis now but kind of modern psychology would say that it can and and i think john that also aligns a little bit with the book because i feel like the book is a lot about how it it like it is funny but also like all yeah nobody nobody gets a happy ending we we don't have to talk about the ending now like it's kind of like a tragic story and like when uh, later the doctor comes back to talk to Nora in the chapter, uh, go down Matthew. And he's basically like telling Nora, like, look, get over yourself. <laughs> like he's like, like, like you're, you're, you're into your, you're suffering a little too much and you should just kind of like deal with it. And I think there are some interpretations of that scene where the doctor is actually advocating for like becoming Christian, uh, where you can subsume your individual problems into like this grander thing. And I don't think that's the whole story. That's just one kind of reading of it. But there's sort of like an injunction to like uh, to just be ordinarily unhappy. <laughs> like, like, don't be don't don't get too much into your unhappiness so that like it's like your sole reason for existing. And so I think there's kind of like the, the doctor kind of screams at Nora about that, uh, which the, Anna, we've all talked about, like, he's finally just like, just just stop. Like, get over <laughs> yourself. Like after like eventually just like dealing with it for a while. So yeah i think it's interesting i don't know if we want to get into it into it but it's interesting how each of the characters at crisis will try to turn to the catholic church at each crisis right which like that's where you get some interesting interpretations of like where this book is sort of involved with like politics of the time and like because i was reading a, a a book that was mentioning how like there used to be this this uh the the dandy to trad pipeline where you were like a decadent dandy and then you would go actually Catholicism is a lot better and they were sort of aligning that and sort of this this mood to do that in this book uh but like and that is offered as one solution but yeah it's I I don't know if it's the solution but it's definitely something that's there if if it's a effective solution because crucially none of the characters actually seem to find any peace 
no in the church it it right again i i feel like uh we we beat up on trad cats a lot on the show but i feel like there is uh, uh something similar going on today where people are uh <laughs> trying to grapple with their existential angst by turning to the catholic church and then uh, they're just doing it for aesthetic purposes, which I guess is a far longer tradition than we realize, which, hey, another theme of the show. Well, and, and, and even too the like, yeah, I mean, the the sort of decadent, yeah, 20s kind of vibe. And then suddenly it like there's a there's a pivot. So, yeah. Do we want to take a minute, you know, on that on that? I feel like we've kind of come up to a good point to talk about, like the politics of the text. Do we want to get into that? Is there a way we can kind of dovetail that into the 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 next chapter or two? Yeah, I I do have a a, a spiel to say on it. I am, uh, so yeah, Nightwood came out in 1936, and I think it, you know, I I think it's impossible to kind of disconnect it from what was going on at the time. And there are some interpretations of like Nightwood's kind of engagement with we might say like sort of fascist ideas at the time. I would, and I'm not saying this is a fascist text and I'm not saying she meant to satirize fascism, but there's an engagement with the idea of like sort of uh, getting really into racial differences, getting really into overcoming universal suffering through some greater cause, as well as sort of like beauty is like this higher ideal. And obviously she's not into this. Um, and I would say she's an anti-fascist writer, and, you know, uh, in her later work, she explicitly addresses, like, the reasons for doing that. But, like, at one point, the doctor's like, I might get really obsessed with Germany. You don't know. <laughs> like, like, he's, like, imagining, like, this, like, this, like, horrible future for himself where he becomes, like, a, yeah, sort of, like, a neo-fascist, like, German obsessive. And so, like, there's this kind of, like, fraught period of, like, these discourses of, like, beauty of, uh, you know, getting rid of your individual suffering through a greater cause and for kind of like racializing differences that are there, but they're obviously not explaining the whole thing. And I think that's what also what makes this book so interesting is like, there's a clear kind of like engagement with the political ideas of the time. Although it's also about a lot of other stuff as we've already been talking for a while. And I just kind of wanted to point that out. Cause I think that's like also something that I really like this book that it's kind of like attempting to address some of that, but not in like, you know, a really like overt way, yeah, yeah. I guess. No, I, I agree with you. I think, uh, like I said, the the fact that the the day world, so to speak, which I think in kind of the, the metaphors this book is working, like that's the fascist world. Like that's the world where at this yeah, point in yeah. time, like, yeah, uh, the, the National Socialist Party is forming in Germany. And uh, <laughs> I'm a Wagner fan, but this this book uh, <laughs> is not nice to uh, my fellow Wagner fans. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, there, there's a lot about kind of how uh, people who like Wagner are, are <laughs> repressing their sexuality and uh, how the, the characters don't have a lot of time for Wagner. And I think even in, yeah, his his what if I became a uh, German abu uh, bit of his monologue, the doctor even mentions how he start listening to Wagner more. Uh well, they don't have time for Wagner because they they're embroiled in all of these like relationships. It's like I can't I can't go attend a twenty four hour opera and have meaningful thoughts around it. I have to deal with all of my personal problems. Like, like... But again, in terms of kind of that core dichotomy, like again, there is so little in this book. Where again, I think that if this was a, I guess you would say like almost like a more more of a social novel. I guess there would be scenes where it's like. 
oh, the yeah. cops come and raid someone's apartment. You know, they raid the doctor's apartment or something and they find him cross-dressed and he goes to prison. Uh, you know, which I'm sure that there are, are novels that kind of fit that description. Uh, and they're probably very good and, you know, heartbreaking in their own way. But again, that never happens in this book. There's all, all anything kind yeah. of happening in, in the, the, again, the day world is so removed from what's going on in these people's world that again, it's, it's this weird structuring absence. It's the reason these people can't live their lives the way that they choose to on some level, but it's never direct. It's always, again, it's always about implication. It's always about the, the more subtle ways society shapes us. It's about, again, when you're in a relationship, you feel like you need to produce a child, whether that's a real child or a doll uh, and the way that that can make a relationship get messy when you can't actually do that. Uh, uh, speaking of that, the, the 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 chapter in the book I was reading that was talking about this book's engagement in fascism mentions the like Italian uh, fascist like getting paid to have children sort of tax where Mussolini was actually paying families to have children. And so in some ways, the book's aligning having a child with dying is again, explicitly anti-fascist, but there's sort of like an engagement with, yeah, the connection between fascism and birthing, at well, least at the time, because obviously birthing isn't fascist entirely, but like the fact that we need more people for like nationalistic back a little bit, though, like that's really interesting when you think about Judah Barnes's personal life, like she never personally had kids. Apparently she like had to take care of a bunch of kids when she was young and hated it. And so yeah. she clearly is someone who did make this conscious choice to reject motherhood. Um, and that's, yeah, there, there's something in that that I think is, is very relevant. And I think that, yeah, in, in the context of fascism, like there is this just strange, uh, I can't put my finger on it. Like, the the Marcus essay I, I read explicitly says that this is like an anti-fascist, you know, satirical text that is is again by parodying Freud and uh Wagner and kind of these other patriarchal, you know, I guess you would almost say Apollonian uh things. You know, it's it's really trying to deconstruct those impulses, even as it's kind of kind of can't name them yet. <laughs> Because again, this is being written in in you know the uh, the twenties, right? Twenties or late twenties, early thirties, I guess. I don't know when it was actually. Yeah, uh, but thirties. Um, you know, again, this is pre World War II. We did not know how bad the whole Nazi situation was going to get. Yeah. I mean, I know people had inklings of it, but it had not happened yet. And so, yeah, thir uh, 1932 yeah, to yeah. 33, so, and then it comes out at in that 36, point. Obviously, so yeah, the fascists are in power. But again, we didn't know what the full horrors of the camps were going to be at that point. And so it's it's kind of pointing towards right. this this future, I but can't quite name what's actually going to happen yet. But I think there is this tension, this really horrifying tension in this book. I think she addresses this more, most like outlet with Felix. Because you have Felix, oh, yeah. who's trying to trace his origins back to the greats, and he's very obsessed with his like 
bloodline, which isn't real, and like how great Austria is, and he struggles for so much of the book to be like, I am important, I'm the Baron, and it's like this nationalism is within him. And I think by the end of the book, though, he kind of gives up on it. Like he kind of he quits his day job, and I think he stops being out in the daylight and caring as much about his heritage, and becomes another night person. Um, you can also see this in his refusal to drink at the beginning of the book. And by the end of the book, he is, you know, fully in the night and drinking mm -hmm. all the time and yeah, just do you, does not care. Do you remember when the anymore. doctor says, Oh, you'll come around eventually. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> you know, like, like, cause he's like, I don't, I'm not going to drink. And he's like, ah, that'll change. <laughs> like, so I think yeah. that too, crucially that change comes because his son decides that he wants to be a priest. And yeah. so the the future oh, yeah. of the Volkbein lineage is suddenly kind of taken out of his hands. And in on, on some level, he's given the freedom to be the person he actually wants to be. Uh because yeah. he clearly is enamored with this world. He wants to be part of it, but he he's he's the person who's kind of, I think, yeah, like you said, Anna, most strongly kind of pulled between the two poles of the world. And I think that's why he disappears for so much of the book. Uh and, is that, uh, He's yeah, trying to be respectable, yeah. uh, and so he's he does not exist for large chunks of the story. Yeah. And well, it, like they they have like a sort of surrogate family there because it's like at the end it's Felix, Frau Mann, and his kid, and they're just kind of like hanging out uh, at the bar. Basically, that's like the last <laughs> we see of Felix. So yeah, I one of the great things about Nightwood is like yeah, you can you can basically talk about almost all of the stuff as much as you want. And I think it is equally a satire of fascism as it is attempting to engage with whatever strands of thought might inform, like, yeah, the, the mood of the time. So, yeah, again, this is just a really amazing book. Like, I just can't believe how dense like this 153 pages is. Again, I feel like we could sit here and we could talk about this for, yeah. for another three yeah. hours and we'd still <laughs> easily just be running around in circles. Unfortunately, as much as I'd love to sit here and talk about Nightwood with you guys all night, uh, I don't know if our listeners would. So let's take a let's let's skip a little bit. There's great stuff in between here, what we've talked about and, and here we're coming up to the end. But I will say definitely a little bit more. Uh, we want to hit the big stuff. And so we got to talk about the ending. Uh, yeah. Ben, I know you really wanted to, to take the lead on this, so why don't you kind of get us into the ending, and then we'll we'll start chatting about that. Yeah. So as we've said, uh, the doctor sort of counsels Nora one more time. Uh, he basically tells her to kind of get over herself, and then you see the effects of uh, basically being this sort of reverse Freudian counselor goes on Matthew, and he gets really wasted and basically kind of like passes out on the floor of the bar, and then then we get the last chapter, which is. Sort of like Nora and Robin reuniting uh, along with the dog. <laughs> and it's written in this incredibly spare style. Not, there's a couple of metaphors, but not as kind of involved and as complex as the ones we looked at. And in this scene, Robin has kind of been getting closer and closer to Nora in America, sort of on her own. And they are reunited in a church. And Nora is basically watching Robin try to get lower and lower uh, to a dog. And the dog gets like clearly weirded out and she's trying to kind of make herself lower and lower to the dog. And Nora is witnessing this um, and we just kind of watch it happen and then it ends. 
Uh, and and I still don't really know what to make of this final chapter. I have a couple ideas because it sort of brings together the book's concerns with being uh, animal with uh, we don't really get a glimpse into Robin. And we don't get like sort of what's going on. And I think I I'm, what did I wrote? Um, actually, yeah, I looked at what I wrote at the end. I said, yeah, I don't know. Um, there's, uh, there's, a, there's, there's a reference to Matthew saying uh, one dog will find both of them, which is basically what happens at the end. And the last chapter is written again, as I said, not flowery. And I feel like there's sort of like, I don't know, almost like Juna Barnes is pointing towards something that she can't herself articulate that involves like either lowering yourself so that you're metaphorically and figuratively lower than a dog or that you can only communicate in like basically animalistic ways and not worry about words. I don't know. Like the, the chapter almost like doesn't solve any of the problems that we've discussed. And it sort of like does like a right angle uh, address to them. Uh, and I feel like in some ways it's kind of addressing the book's concerns with like, what does it mean to be an animal or what does it mean to be a man? And I think uh, the positive reading would be that like in doing this, like lowering yourself you're becoming you're incorporating your animal nature and your human nature together. And I like that reading, but it also doesn't account for how sad the end of this book makes me feel because like the dog is really upset and like Robin is like crying and like Nora's watching this happen in her church. So I don't know if it's like a, a resolution, but I don't know. There's a lot going on there and I still don't know how I feel about it, but it is like a very powerful final chapter. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I remember when I first read this book. When I first read this book and I texted you because I learned that you had read the book and you like immediately asked me what I thought the ending chapter meant. And I was like, uh, who knows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can, I can take a stab at it. Uh, Go for it. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you guys. Like when I, when I first read this, I, I very much was like, what? And then I was like, oh, that makes me feel bad. Why is the dog yeah. upset? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, just to correct myself, this is actually the shortest chapter in the book, not the Jenny Petherbridge chapter. But uh, <laughs> just don't want to get don't want to get emails about how I was wrong. But <laughs> my stab at like what this means. And I, again, I'm coming at this from the, the standpoint, like I I'm kind of won over by the idea that this is a comic novel. And so I think this is supposed to be kind of one last gag so to speak where like this is kind of a parody of the perfect like rom-com ending it's like robin wanders onto jenny's or not jenny's uh nora's property and she hears nora's dog and then nora lets the dog out and it leads her to uh robin and they meet and they uh kind of realize like oh we're really destined for each other but this is Nightwood. This is Juna Barnes. Uh, <laughs> he, we clown in this motherfucker. And so she kind of, she has to undercut that. Like, and it kind of gets back to what I was saying earlier about like the idea that maybe all this stuff isn't reconcilable. Like, yeah. even if you accept these feelings, if you try to like accept that you can't, do exactly what society wants you to do. You can't cure this, this weird emotional turmoil you have because of your relationship and because of other things. Even if you accept that fundamental like chaos of life, it doesn't fix anything. You're like Robin's still a weirdo who 
behaves like a freak at all like possible times because it's just who she is. And again, we we don't get Robin's psychology. We don't understand why she is the way she is. I think that again, this is like her contrariness. She's yeah. she finds herself in this position where it could be this grand romantic moment, and she's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to behave in the most freakish way possible because that's just my impulse. I, I am a fundamentally like contrary person. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also throughout the book, uh, Dr. Matthew O'Connor talks about um, how like we should go back more to our animalisticness and the innocence. And there's also a lot of talk about Robin wanting to be innocent. Mm-hmm. And I almost wonder if it's just her, I mean, it's obviously her just groveling at the feet of Nora. And I think in that moment, kind of becoming dead to Nora. Like, Mm. I think Nora doesn't look at her with, the sense that I get is that Nora does not look at her with anything but disgust in that moment. That's my takeaway. That's my personal interpretation. But I think it's like the ultimate innocence of hers to be more lowly of the dog. Oh, and the dog just does not, does, like, rejects her as well. And I think that explains, like, the fact that the the language is so spare, too. Like, that to me explains, yeah, like, why Nora's sort of, like, okay, why was I in love with you in the first place? Kind of, like, like something like that. Like, there's kind of, like, a, a stripping of illusion there. There might also be, like, a wish fulfillment element to it. This is kind of Juna Barnes being, like, yeah, Thelma, this is what you're doing. <laughs> well, Very also, possible. too, also, too, like, do you remember there's like, I think at one point when Nora actually is speaking to the doctor, she remembers like this scene where there's like a Madonna image and there's like a woman in front of the Madonna. And he's like and she goes, oh, that was us. Like we 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 were in this sort of like too good to be true, like mother daughter relationship that shouldn't have happened. And then the, the 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 weird parody, as you said, John is yeah, they're in a church and instead of the Madonna, it's a dog. Like so, like yeah, there's like yeah, there's kind of like a, a, an inversion of maybe like the 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 way that the imagery of the relationship was set up to kind of yeah, like undercut what happened. Um, it's still like kind of a brutally sad chapter though. Like I know I know like I see why it could be funny, but something about like how. Like the, the chapter almost feels like hungover or something. It's like you're you've got this like florid imagery and like this sensual overload, and then like you're just like hungover at the church, like watching the scene. Like it's it feels like a come down, I guess. I, I don't disagree with you. I think it's definitely like it's tragic comic at best. But again, I I'm looking at it from the standpoint again of the the opening where it's like it is this parody of again, this kind of grand gothic thing. And I think that this is its own kind of parody. Like this is almost, it's almost, there's almost like a vaguely like, maybe Lovecraftian isn't the right word to it. But again, it's this, it's this scene of madness, like yeah. very like yeah. gothic madness uh, that undercuts what, again, I think would traditionally be, if this was like a regular novel, would be like this very like dramatic, romantic, like coming back together. Uh, right. But I think yeah. Judah Barnes is undercutting that. And I, I really I like that. I don't know. I've yeah. been thinking a lot about kind of the way that uh, kind of the literary establishment, for back or lack of a better word, kind of is always positing the idea that like literature, like every, every piece of like great literature is a wisdom text. 
right. and that yeah. you, can, you can take away some message uh, from every great book that's going to make your life better. And I really kind of feel like the message of this book is that, uh, no, you can't. No, it won't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and maybe it's just where I am in my life. But yeah. uh, I don't know. I think that there is something to that. I kind of like the fact that this book kind of rejects the idea that it's going to give you this this advice that's just going to like help you like, yeah, integrate or something. Uh, along those lines, John, a famous Juna Barnes quote, which I think aligns with what you're saying is uh, towards, towards, I believe, uh, the end of her life. She said, for most people, life is nasty, brutish and short. For me, it has simply been nasty and brutish. (laughs) 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 Things are not going to get better. (laughs) (laughs) I also, too, wanted to say that I'm I'm glad we're doing this because I feel like when people talk about this book, they tend to just go, I don't know, man, (laughs) because like like, because there's clearly like a lot happening. And and I think talking about it is important. And I think that can be wisdom in itself. But yeah, this is like this book is not going to give you any platitudes nor any like clear cut answers. It's it's simply just is <laughs> so. And there's something magnificent about that. Uh, so along those lines, uh, I, John, I think we should answer. Would we put this book in the infinite library? Uh, yes well, or no? Uh, uh, John Hagley. <laughs> 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 OK, uh, a little context to your listeners. Ben and I have been talking about the show a little bit We're we want to kind of. And end our thoughts kind of about, yeah, kind of just summing things up, giving an idea of like whether or not we think this book is worth your time. I think in the case of Nightwood absolutely is. Uh, In terms of the, uh, I I hate to put it in like crass mathematical terms, but just in terms of like the amount of like bangers in terms of sentences, jokes, images, like that you can get per page. I can't think of another book I've read in years that like tops this thing, like 153 pages. And I swear every single page has like something awesome on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I absolutely think that this, uh, I mean, this book belongs in anybody's library unless you suck, in which case, uh, don't read it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Losers need not apply. Yeah. Um, no, Jenny. No, no Jenny Pether Bridges need to read this book. <laughs> and uh, John, I agree. I think if we're thinking in terms of time and mortality, yes, definitely read this book. Bang for buck. But also, I think generally when one thinks about the modernists, it's usually like, uh, I don't want to have to read Ulysses, which is amazing. I don't want to have to read Faulkner, which is awesome. I, you know, I just want to read something approachable. And I think like this is the best thing because like besides Virginia Woolf, I think like more people should be reading this. And I think if you want to go deep on the modernists, you can obviously read Joyce and Pound and all the big the big guys. But but I think Juna Barn is 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 sadly underlooked. And I think it gives you basically everything else those give you, but in like almost like a supercharged way. And so I think for that reason, too, it should be uh, you should definitely give it a read. Yeah, maybe because it's less uh, uh mythologize like this definitely does not feel as intimidating as like reading ulysses which uh not saying ulysses is better than this by any means but people make such a big deal out of reading books like ulysses that like sometimes it is nice to just be like i got something that i don't have to feel like i need to read a bunch of supplementary materials even though we did uh, to understand (laughs) it 
Uh, yeah, Anna, what, what are you thinking? Uh, yay or nay? I say yay. I mean, I won't get too much into it, but I oftentimes hate the modernists. And this is one of the books that I read recently that made me go, they're all right. They're actually really good. Um, yeah, I think it should definitely be on your bookshelf. It's such a short read. There's so much. And I think I'll probably reread it again. And I don't typically reread books. And I think you can reread it as many times as you want and get something different out of it each time. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to be coming back to this one in the future. Yeah, and a, a note should be said also, uh, we mentioned this before we were recording, but apparently T.S. Eliot cut some of the sexy stuff out and you can find that edition that's through the Dalkey archive. And I read it, and I, but I don't remember like what the sexy stuff was. But also, like, apparently you can read about the construction of Nightwood in the Dalkey archive one. And apparently there were drafts of Nightwood that were like 500 pages long. So, like, apparently, like, she really cut this down to, like, a lot of it. And also, wow. apparently, um, the squatter chapter actually came after her going to see Matthew the first time was the original chapter run. So, like, she's just kind of like, I don't know what to do about Nora. And Matthew's like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then he confesses that he was Jenny. And then you get the the, the sort of reveal, basically, that about Jenny. So, Yeah. Honestly, it's, it, that sounds even better, and so it must have been meddling T.S. Eliot who suggested this edit. But <laughs> yeah, I did yes, hear that T.S. Eliot edited this, and I am very interested in eventually reading the unedited version. St. Louis's least favorite son, in my opinion. <laughs> you take that back. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and talking about you know self-invention, he he moved to Britain and became a British banker, even though he's from <laughs> St. Louis. So he even adopted a fake British accent, which you can hear recordings of. <laughs> so nobody wants to be from St. Louis. <laughs> yeah, nobody where is should. where is St. Louis's great modernist writer? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, it was T.S. Eliot, and uh, I'm I'm sticking with my uh, my feeling that T.S. Eliot sucks. <laughs> well, um, should, should we should we lay it there? Is there any final thoughts? Uh, I think Anna wanted to do recommendations, so oh, let's yeah. let's give recommendations one more uh, one last hurrah. So, Anna, since you're the guest and uh, the birthday girl. Why don't you go first? What would what's what okay. text would you pair with Nightwood? I'm going to be greedy and I'm going to do three, and I'm not going to be able to spend it very well. I know. Uh, in my mind, this makes up a queer canon of its own. And so oh, cool. the first that I'm going to recommend is Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. Um, absolutely the same level of heart wrenching and tragic, and is beautifully on the same level as Nightwood. Um, Giovanni's room. Great. Fantastic. Also very short. Um, the next one I'm going to recommend is Orlando by Virginia Woolf. Less, less dreary, more fun, and a lot more gender ambiguity in that one. And then I'm going to go way out and I'm going to recommend Passing by Nella Larson. Um, that book is one of the only books by modernist class that I liked. And I think beyond the very obvious talking about um, 
race issues in America, I believe that it also has, if you read it the right way, another metaphor in there about bisexuality. And those would be my three recommends along with Maywood. Yeah, that sounds great. I, uh, I'm especially intrigued by passing. Great. Uh, I guess I'll go next. Uh, text I'm going to pair with this one uh, is a book that I think is very obviously uh, ins- inspired uh, to some degree by Nightwood. Uh, and that is a work by my personal favorite author, Angela Carter. That's Nights at the Circus, uh, which is as you could probably guess from the title, a book about knights at a circus uh, in kind of the, a similar time period as as this book. And I think being written by Carter, it's it's post-war, post-World War II. And so I think that it's dealing with a lot of similar themes, but dealing with them kind of from the remove of, of the post-war years of kind of, you know, Carter's writing kind of in in the wake of the feminist movement and sexual liberation uh, book came out in 1984. So obviously almost 60 years uh, after Nightwood came out. Um, and I think that it's asking similar questions, but it's also kind of coming at it from a, a place where there's a lot of horror, but also a lot of hope for the future, uh, which I think is something like we said, Nightwood really doesn't give us. Uh, and while I, like I said, I really like that about Nightwood, I also really like Carter's read, which I think grapples with a lot of similar questions about uh, gender and psychology, uh, but maybe also has has a little bit more uh, belief that the world can get better, even if we can't fix everything. Yeah, that, that sounds great. I also think that it was called Nights at the Circus, right? Yes. Yeah, that's like a very that's like it's like the most Juna Barnes title I can think of. So, so yeah, that makes total sense to me. Well, that's why again so. why I was so surprised I never heard of Juna Barnes because clearly uh, Angela Carter read everything Juna Barnes ever wrote. Like as soon as I read Nightwood, I was like, oh, Angela Carter read this. Yeah, I uh, I really want to read Writer because that's Juna Barnes's first book because it sounds like she basically read Ulysses and it was like. I'm going to do whatever my version of that is. So apparently there's like different styles and voices in writer. She also so. illustrated writer uh, and also Lady's Almanac. I think Nightwood's the only one of her novels she didn't illustrate. And I saw some uh. of the her drawings and she was also on top of being, again, uh, <laughs> an obscenely good prose stylist was also a really cool like illustrator. Uh, it's very yeah. kind of like surrealist, like ink drawing kind of reminds me a lot of like kind of some like woodcut stuff i don't know i really like her her drawing too uh i believe one of those books was first published under the title of just a book which also makes me love her more (laughs) here is a book yeah a book take it uh yeah i i think i uh i'll have to recommend um don quixote by Kathy Acker, not Sir Miguel Cervantes. Uh, Kathy Acker is a uh, sort of postmodern, uh, you know, lesbian sort of William Burroughs, I would say. And she does a lot of like weird collage. There's a lot of like bodily, you know, humors. There's not quite the sort of like alien monstrosities in Burroughs and Kathy Acker's work, but it's very like pulpy and viscerally, and it's very postmodern. And in her version of Don Quixote, it's like, 
you know, what if Don Quixote was just a, a woman traveling through America? And so there's like, <laughs> there's a lot of just like weird things that happen. It's like a picturesque novel. There's weird references to Don Quixote. It's a very like goopy book. Um, <laughs> and it's only like 200 pages. So uh, yeah, Kathy Acker rocks. Um, it's probably the only, I would definitely put like that in a lineage with Nightwood. Although I think Don, uh, Don Quixote has a lot more kind of like postmodern-esque stuff as opposed to being pure modernism. But I think the kind of picturesque vibe or picaresque rather is, I think, uh, a, cl a clear parallel. Awesome. Uh, well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us again this week. Uh, we had a lot of fun discussing this book. Uh, hopefully our discussion wasn't too uh, wide ranging or too, uh, too rambling for, for everyone to follow. If you uh, like this episode, please let us know. I uh, definitely want to start requesting uh, at the end of the show here for if you listen, please rate or review us on Spotify or iTunes uh, would really help us get the show out to more people. Uh, and we'd really love to see more people listening. Yeah. And John, if, if we became a little like Matthew O'Connor, so be it uh, to, to, read, to read Nightwood is to become like uh, Matthew Mighty Grain of Salt, Dante O'Connor. So. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's all I have to say for today, uh, except happy birthday, Anna. Thank you. Yeah, happy birthday, Anna. Thanks for coming on. Uh, honestly, I don't think we could have done this without you, so I'm, I'm glad you were here. Me too. Uh, <laughs> now, before we end, you have to say the line. You gotta say the line. Temper books. Thank you for listening to The Infinite Library. If you liked our show, we hope you'll subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. It helps us a lot. If you want to follow us on social media, we can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky at Infinite Library Pod. If you'd like to contact our team directly with episode ideas or feedback, you can email us at infinitelibrarypod at gmail.com. Our intro music is by Amos Legend in the Forest of Mayhem. Our outro music is by DJ Daggy Diggs, and our logo is created by Lars Noir. You can support our show by supporting them. We hope you'll join us back in the stacks for the next episode soon. Semper Books, bookheads. <laughs>